You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome to the show. Super, super excited today. Uh, got into work and not long after it, we received an email that uh, our NGO is again punching above its weight uh, with a prominent reference in the latest United Nations Human Rights Council report of the Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing as a component of the right to an adequate standard of living and on the right to non-discrimination in this context. My, oh my, what a big uh, heading that is. Uh, what a fantastic achievement it is to um, have our speculative vacancies report quoted in this high-profile report written up in The Guardian and uh, talking about the commodification of housing, uh, the financialization of, uh, of, of our communities and what a danger that is. So are they not some of the core themes here on The Renegade Economist? And I'm going to come back to this report in a few minutes, but I want to step into an interview uh, with Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, who's been staying with us for the last month. And uh, I wanted to uh, delve into some of the high-level machinations of uh, the sort of information warfare zone we're involved in, in terms of trying to decipher the truth and put an objective analysis on behalf of the public interest uh, rather than uh, the private interests. So let's step on into this uh, interview. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist this week. We're discussing all things earth-sharing as we try and find a way forward to make sense of the madness of life with an empty wallet in such a bountiful world. So uh, Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, we mentioned uh, the lowest common denominator. How are we actually to to really target uh, these types who are growing in number and influence, as Donald Trump has shown, uh, there seems to be some sneaky sort of marketing tricks that are going on to uh, get the everyday voter to to basically accept these various dog whistles that are thrown out, these racist calls, uh, you know, concerns about refugees and immigration, rather than looking at the 0.01% who uh, are the real um, scourge of, of so many nations and their people as uh, this global war zone continues. Yeah, it's, it's very pernicious. I'll talk for a moment about something called dark posts. These were posts, especially during the last election between Trump and Clinton, where uh, Clinton focused on television ads, things of that sort, uh, but the Trump campaign focused on these dark posts. And dark posts are basically advertisements that one sees when they're scrolling through their feed on Facebook. And they're not shared organically with their friends. So in other words, you post a picture on Facebook, it goes out to all your friends or who, whoever is sort of um, most uh, aligned with you in, in their algorithm. But with dark posts, uh, you know, even if you like them, comment on them, they don't have the same uh, virality. And the point of this, as far as electoral politics goes, is to have very targeted messages that only those that you want them to see them see them. So in other words, 
if Donald Trump is targeting a a black person in a particular suburb, they're not necessarily going to tell them why they should vote for Trump because Trump is pretty obviously a either a racist or a, a racial opportunist. But he's going to show them a video of Hillary saying some some negative things about black people she had she had a few gaffes you know we can debate about whether uh she actually meant those things or they were interpreted correctly but the point wasn't so much to get people uh to actually vote for trump but to just not show up and support hillary but because these people couldn't get feedback from their from their friends and and the point was really to not so much persuade them on the basis of rational arguments but to bombard them with information that would exploit their cognitive biases. This is really destroying the integrity of of the debate on important issues. So we're just bombarded with all this information online. And unfortunately, those that are the most susceptible to it are the ones that, you know, politicians utilizing these technologies are going to um, have the most power over and the most influence with. And so they're targeting our deep-seated fears and because the dwindling effectiveness of education is not really providing us with the analytical tools anymore to look holistically at where the genuine cause of these problems is coming from, uh, in a world of media noise, uh, some of those deep-seated fears uh, can easily be exploited. Yeah, and it's not that this didn't exist before social media. I mean, if we talk about Australia, Rupert Murdoch, you know, <laughs> has has been using um, newspe- newspapers and television programs in, in this way for a very long time. It's just increasing in sophistication, and it's getting better at exploiting these these fears. Yeah, so here we are, a um, hundred odd years ago. Uh, people who were trying to grapple with the issues we raise about uh, the, the need for the commons, the, the freedom that uh, results from being able to, to share some of this common bounty rather than be taxed for working, uh, set up things such as the School of Philosophy to teach people, to give people the analytical tools to grapple with the depths of this deep human right to share in the bounty of the earth. And uh, in this day and age where we've got these deep psychological arrows being fired at people left, right and centre, it makes our job as change agents uh, all the more difficult. So how do you see a way forward um, in this age? A big question. Yeah, well, I think that we in some ways need to use the same kind of tools to um, invoke people to think and, and to question. I, I think that you know we shouldn't completely exploit people's fears in the same way in order to make them think deeper about some of these issues and not just trust their uh, gut reactions. But it's also important to take something from what Trump and others have, have done um, with, these, with these dark posts, and that is really understanding uh, your audience. Any successful political campaign needs to have a thorough understanding of who they're trying to target and the way they see the world. There is a professor at Yale University named Daniel Kahan 
who has discovered with his predecessors something called cultural cognition theory. And the goal of cultural cognition theory is to help communicate uh, rigorous scientific and statistics-based reasoning to the public in a way that they're going to find agreeable. If we talk about, for instance, climate change, they've shown that the way that you frame the issue really matters. Simply giving people more, quote-unquote, evidence, be it rigorously scientific or otherwise, doesn't actually help to reduce polarization. One would think that we are perfect Cartesian robots, that uh, we get we get the evidence and then we come to greater agreement about what's actually going on. But his work has shown that it actually causes the opposite if it's not delivered in an effective way. And actually people start to get irritated. And I think you see this with some of the people at, for instance, like the Cato Institute or people that are of a more sort of individualist hierarchical bend where they see the communitarians sort of encroaching on their individual liberty and 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 right to be entrepreneurial and, and and do things like that and what his research shows is that you can you can communicate scientific evidence to these types of people in a way that doesn't sort of make them uh, bristle and it's it's far from manipulation of the type we're seeing with these dark posts but at, at the same time, it's um, it's more effective in actually causing more consensus on the issues. George Lakoff, who wrote Don't Think of an Elephant back in right. 2004, was on about uh, values-based uh, communications rather than this um, rational evidence-based uh, focus. And so developing the narrative we've seen grow very strongly with uh, story-based strategies Uh, where um, people tell their own sort of story and teach through that sort of lighter touch rather than having a a document full of um, statistical weapons for people. So how does Kahan build on that sort of knowledge base? Well, what he says that you should do is not even try to deliver a balanced argument you know you see news sites like cnn who say yes we deliver accurate and balanced news but we have to acknowledge that there is no such thing everybody brings their own biases to the table their own interest to the table the thing that you want to do is have people from different walks of life explain it to their constituencies and this isn't to say that you have sort of a puppet that says you know what you want them to say but instead that you have someone deliver the message that can start with emphasizing the values that people already believe in and i think it it comes with a need to reduce one's certainty that that they are right and their perspective on the world is the only perspective you you might take a more symbiotic approach and say that we we need people of all uh, different stripes to to correct each other's cognitive biases so for instance if you if you want to sell climate change to you know the rural south in the united states the thing to do is to not put um for lack of a better word a hippie with a with a long beard um in front of a group of southerners and and tell them you know hey you're supporting destroying the planet. You're bad people. You shame anyone like that and they're going to resist you. The, the thing to do would, would be to have someone who 
is is from the south and can emphasize the need for individualism for hard work and you know also say that hey we need to protect our country we need to protect our country from 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 these threats and these threats you know can come in various forms they can come in the form of you know um invaders but they can also come from the environment i think a great example of this is lyndon baines johnson he was a u.s president his wife Lady Bird actually took a tour of the South during the Civil Rights Movement. And, you know, she, she just went and, and talked directly to people. And she was pushing some very, very radical uh, ideas for the time on them. But it helped a lot that that she was one of them and was perceived as such. And And she wasn't going there to hurt her own people, but just to try to explain to them you know, why it was important that we treat black people like we treat white people. I've seen uh, this summed up as the rise of the me spokesperson and and having, as you say, someone from their own uh, socioeconomic background uh, present this information rather than, than a New York intellectual sort of thing. Okay, well, that's good to get on tape that, Jacob. Uh, but uh, to finish off, tell me how... Uh, you perceive the NGO industry in America, and you mentioned the Cato industry. There's the Heritage Foundation. They're almost megaliths. They've got armies of press agents. They've got, you know, the Koch brothers funding them. They've got all of this huge money coming through. And there's even groups that George Monbiot is revealing to us called Atlantic Bridge which uh, are based in both the UK and well, I think the UK one might have shut down, but in America as well. And their job is to bring uh, policymakers and uh, celebrities and major donors together. And uh, their primary objective is to develop model bills. So they develop a bill that suits a certain donor's preferred outcome and give it to these public spokespeople who can take it away and pretend, um, if you like, that it's their bill. They become the me spokesperson in their community. So the rise of influence in the NGO world is immense. I firmly believe that the Cato Institute was behind this global push for the land supply crisis. They started spreading that rumour uh, back in the late 90s and it spread around the world and now we have this perfect excuse to slash down our, our forests, uh, concrete over our green wedges around the world and uh, it's very hard for uh, small to medium-sized NGOs to compete with that sort of economic oomph. Yeah, I, I don't think there's getting around the fact that uh, communicating information and ideas is a war. It is an arms race, and you know the eternal price for freedom is is vigilance, right? So there there really is no getting around that. Um, and at at the end of the day, we do have to sort of trust and appeal to other people's good side. We can we can do things to increase our own funding, our own research, our own voice. But if ultimately uh, people don't want to stick up for their own interests, the the environment, for poverty, for these important issues, it's honestly not our, our responsibility to push any uh, farther beyond that. 
so but we just then, have to remain vigilant. But then if you do the research and really look at all of these theories, how do you find something that's got the best bang for your buck? Well, that's precisely what I tried to do. I, I said, you know, there's all these important issues um, in the world, but how can I sort of so we've got population, we've got deforestation, right. we've got water problems, right. uh, we've got inequality, we've got racism, we've got refugees. How does earth sharing deal with all that? Yeah, well, it, 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 it fun- <laughs> in, in 10 <laughs> sure, seconds. Sure. Well, it, I think it fundamentally boils down to what the 17th century economists, particularly in, in England and in France, were, were trying to figure out these geometric proofs of how society works how wealth distribution works. And at the time, they weren't so concerned about the environment because they didn't see the humans having much of an ability to affect that on the global scale. But it's it's highly related. And I think there's a lot we can learn from them as a good rule of thumb about how to structure society so that we don't have all these problems. And as I said before, through my survey of you know economists, social entrepreneurs, if we don't all have an equal right to the earth, then we're going to have poverty. We're going to have unnecessary conflict for for territory. I mean, you might take Israel as an example. We're going to have environmental pollution when we don't all have an equal right to these resources. Pollution when we don't all have an equal right to these resources. Pollution when we don't all have an equal right to these resources. And that was Jacob Schwartz Lucas from earthsharing.org and also the Robert Schelkenbach Foundation. Our uh, cousin's over in New York. He's out here uh, visiting for uh, the, the month, so great to have him on the show a couple of times, talking about some of the incredible challenges we in the NGO world face in terms of uh, taking on the rent seekers, taking on the 0.01%. Our aim here on The Renegade Economist is to ensure that those who own scarce monopolies pay something back to the community for that legal privilege. Unfortunately, uh, the entire um, framework of recognising monopoly rights has been turned on its head and so we have a democracy now where 94% of Australian MPs own investment properties and they are acting to actively protect monopoly rights uh, in large part. Occasionally there are skirmishes around resource rents. Uh, Talk of uh, the capital gains tax reform recently was quickly shot down by lobbyists. I recently found out it's uh, $3,000 a day to hire a lobbyist or a minimum $5,000 a month to keep them on a retainer. So please donate to prosper.org.au and maybe we should get in on this game because my oh my, it's getting frustrating what's happening. Everywhere you look, uh, there's policy fraud. Uh, There's misinformation uh, flying about, so uh, just uh, fantastic uh, for uh, us at the Renegade Economists to see a report from the United Nations. I'm going to have it up on the show notes there, the report by the Special Rapporteur into Housing, and uh, it's a blitzkrieg of Renegade Economists themes talking about the incredible pressures of financializing the economy and handing over the basically handing the keys to those who can uh, engage in legalized corruption aka political donations to sculpt the legal and economic frameworks and political so that uh, they get 
to make money in their sleep, whilst the rest of us are taxed for working, are taxed basically for existing. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, delving into this report, which has, uh, I don't know, some 80-odd 80, 80 uh strong uh, paragraph sort of sections that talk about uh, uh, various levels of commodification um, the human rights some of the the, chap- the chapter headings are uh, human rights impl- implications of the financialization of of housing the effects of excess global capital dehumanizing housing from social use to commodity value creating inequality and exclusion relinquished governance and accountability financialization of housing in developing and emerging economies, lack of access to justice, effective remedies and accountability. And of course, there's policy responses to the financialization of housing. So of course, uh, a lot of it is about uh, the role of the banking system. Uh, My uh, initial review of the paper is that uh, whilst it does talk about many of the themes we address here, it doesn't get to the heart of it in uh, looking at uh, the fiscal policy really needed, the government uh, tax-related policies that could lead to multi-generational change. But still, uh, this is a a wealth of information for uh, any reformer out there to uh, look into and Point 29 says, uh, what is so stark about the pouring of these vast amounts of money into housing is that hardly any of it is directed towards ameliorating the insufferable housing conditions in which millions live. Point number 30 says, a significant portion of investor-owned homes are simply left empty. In Melbourne, Australia, 82,000 or one-fifth of investor-owned units lie empty. That is the reference to our speculative vacancies report under the section Dehumanised Housing from Social Use to Commodity Value. And as you uh, scroll through the report, uh, uh, 31 says financial financialised housing markets respond to preferences of global investors rather than to the needs of communities. And I also itemise 45, which uh, looks at Informal settlements in southern cities are regularly demolished for luxury housing and commercial developments such as shopping malls and other high-end services intended for those with expendable incomes. In Lagos, Nigeria, 30,000 residents of the Ototo Gabame community were forcibly removed after their waterfront homes were set alight, allegedly related to luxury developments. Many were left homeless. Uh, This one's a shocker. Number 48, in Egypt, after Prime Ministerial Decree number 350-2007 removed restrictions on foreign purchases of property, land prices more than doubled in many areas, rising at a rate of 148% per year between 2007 and 11. Well, that led to uh, the uprisings there in Egypt, didn't it? Uh, And that point goes on to uh, talk about extension of credit for housing has been largely restricted to higher income households in Cairo and Giza. And approximately 3 million homes have been left empty or unfinished by their owners in urban areas. Poverty continues to increase and more than 12 million people live in informal housing. So... The report is just full of bite-sized pieces along those lines. 
uh, really, you, if you need to arm yourself with any more ammunition that uh, housing has become a speculative kite rather than a human right, well, this is yet another piece of armoury for you around your dinner table conversation in your online forays uh, into uh, the conservative world of politics and, and trying to counter some of these uh, uh, dark ads that are going on out there. Uh, it, it's just... Uh, so frustrating that uh, Wall Street can destroy the global economy. We've talked many times about how land prices in America started falling in the first quarter of 2006. Nearly three years later, Lehman Brothers blew up and everyone blamed the financialization of the economy of housing, uh, but little was looked at the role of uh, property speculators pushing land prices up before uh, above what people can actually afford, and from that uh, default start to rise, uh, land prices fall, banks have to write down the credit uh, on their books so they can't lend out as much, and then all through 2006 and seven into 08, uh, many small and medium-sized uh, banking uh, operations folded in America, and unfortunately... Uh, Reports like this from the UN uh, are stuck on that very trendy topic of banking bashing. So uh, let's look a little bit deeper at what's going on in a world where in the last year, Sydney housing prices have increased by 18.5%. Just uh, incredible there. Um, wages, of course, were at a record low uh, growth uh, in the December quarter of some 0.1%. Uh, going backwards in terms of inflation by 1.4%. At the same time, the stats came out that corporate profits as a percentage of GDP were up at record levels. And uh, Fairfax Media, the so-called progressive paper here in Melbourne, was out on Friday uh, up in arms about uh, land tax bill shock. And they were saying how uh, land taxes had increased by some 22% in the last uh, year but of course i was quickly on twitter at earth sharing saying uh, that victorian landholders enjoyed a 133 billion dollar gain last year equals a 2.2 billion dollar thank you bill that's what land tax basically stands for way unfair question mark lucky for some and gavin putland he was uh, tweeting help landlords suffer as their assets rise in value some might be forced to cash in obscene capital gains. Wah! So there's some of the misinformation we have to counter. And uh, this article by Johansson, who really should know better, uh, rolled out the teary widow. Sure, she's hurting paying her land tax bill, but I bet you she's laughing when she looks at how much money um, she could make if she sold her property. So... Uh, yeah, massive, massive uh, distortion there. And you'd think um, in the same week when the Victorian government's talking about uh, a $1 billion social housing loan guarantee, uh, that uh, there might be a critical comment on that article by Johansson. But of course, uh, it was all left to the Property Council. They, of course, uh, cover the ages advertising uh, bills, some 60% of their revenue. So we better look after them, hey? Well... Wouldn't it be good if somehow we could figure out a way so that with every political election, 
we could uh, know which candidates own investment properties. Let's figure out a way to uh, calculate that, uh, dear listeners. I'd love your help. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au and please help us hide from a current affair who are trying to get us uh, to comment on uh, the number of empty homes that Department of Housing is holding, uh, DHS. Uh, uh, everyone's concerned about uh, the housing problem. Where are the distractions going to occur? All right, a small talk. I run a break and we've got... Uh, uh, a repeat of a previous show lined up. So uh, thanks very much for listening to us here on The Renegade Economist. <laughs> 